when you're facilitating with communities that have been historically marginalized what begins to change what does a facilitator do in their doing and being when you're working in that context hmm it's a it's a question that is dependent on a lot of context so i'll give an example how it changes with scenarios so let's say uh, somebody is facilitating a group of victims of acid attacks in a urban setting now if the facilitator for instance belongs to the same group or from the same community is also a victim things change drastically now if that person do not belongs or has not been a victim of acid attack but is a woman and comes from a rural space and most of these women who she is facilitating also come from small towns in north india becomes slightly easier still doable but when it when it gets to a let's say a urban facilitator going into west bengal and facilitating a group of acid victims survivors of acid attacks becomes tougher and then when i say it becomes tougher the scope of learning substantially increases and for example somebody like me who's doing it then one becomes a challenge and two the learning is immense so now to answer the question if i may take it the other way round what do i need to do to ensure that i learn from that space or what is it that i need to change within to be able to facilitate that space or those people now of some fairly simple things to say maybe slightly difficult to practice is to be open minded is to imagine things that you may not have imagined in a sense that you may hear in the group that you may not have believed otherwise to be able to engage ideas that are out of your world view completely to give an anecdote chalini i was quite surprised i remember my initial sessions of facilitation when i just started i realized that the number of women who face sexual abuse in their homes and outside and because we were able to create a space that was trustworthy the number of women who could share in a session that we did called life map some people call it river of life also was nothing short of shocking to me i never heard of it before i never we only read it in papers or news channels but when somebody says it in front of you that's one but when half the women say it it like becomes almost unbelievable now how do you process that and how do you take that and what do you do of it so i think first when it comes to marginalization people need to imagine that the realities will arrive from a space that will largely be unheard of we know very little of the communities that we may be going to so we may we may be going to facilitate sessions with communities that we may know very little about or we may have read about or we may have heard about so i think one is to be completely prepared in that sense and sometimes i feel i was describing this to someone else the other day and i said that it's like a live operation that you're doing for people 
who are from marginalized communities. And if you know how to start the operation but may not be able to stitch it, becomes a very, very delicate process. And from my own experience, I can say that it can often lead to more harm than good. And it has happened to me in either ways. In settings of marginalization where I had no clue, I realized I scarred them, if I may use that word, in some ways. Then I could heal anything. In urban settings, if I may give you a simultaneous example, in the urban setting, I felt that I brought people to a level of discomfort in a session where I could not take them back at all. And I left them midway and I did not know how to close this loop. So in that moment of life surgery, I think it becomes very important to first be fully prepared. And there's no hurry. So if I may give you an example, you may be going to facilitate a session of a community in Odisha that you know nothing about, not even the language. You find somebody in the group in the first hour, you go one day before you find somebody in the group and you make them the facilitator and support them. So you do what you want to do, but you make them the lead person, at least in terms of language, context and community setting. Because that may not add as much value in terms of facilitation, but that will definitely ensure that you cannot create no harm. It's one of them who are doing it. And then once you hold more grip of the situation, you can take charge and in one day or two days, if it's a five days program, in one day you can make sense of things and then you can carry on. I think Shalini, this is possibly the most delicate setting and one of the most hazardous area one can get into. It's like getting into Kashmir and talking about either on war or on peace. Both are dangerous because of the setting. Now, it can become very, very risky. I think one needs to practice more caution than adequate, more than adequate caution. Give more space to local people. And I'm taking for granted that one has to be completely convinced that you are open that you are open to even beyond the stretch of your imagination to be able to listen, absorb, adapt and move on from the situations that you may encounter. And you can also disagree with that maybe if that's required, if you think otherwise, that I believe that sometimes if you are not at that space, it's better not to go than just getting in there. This happened with me a couple of times when I invited a couple of people who just so so I do this that when I go there and I need some people I try to get new facilitators who are just learning sometimes often in college and when it's large groups I often take them because then they can conduct smaller groups and I realize it's not a good idea to do this in this setting because not they're bad people or they are become they'll become bad facilitators but they just will not have any clue. And you realize this, I often realize this when we divide a group into three parts and when we come back, you find three different energies because of the context of the facilitators that they're coming from. And then you realize that you'll spend more time in bringing them together than to actually move forward from where you already were. And sometimes I've chosen not to split it into groups, even if the delivery of content or understanding or sense making is less. I'm not sure if I'm able to fully explain it, but it's a very, very delicate thread.
and uh, one has to be very very cautious while trading on it let me add another dimension to this there was i think that made a lot of sense and i'll tell you very recently i was having a conversation with somebody who was invited to facilitate not an entire training but to facilitate about 2 to 3 hours of a session with you know members of the lgbtqia plus spectrum and the apprehension she had is that but i'm a cisgendered heterosexual woman you know that leads me to one more question it's not really a question i think it's a very um it's one of those very human dilemmas right that to facilitate marginalized communities do I, do i have to be from marginalized groups myself i think that question has come to me in so many ways from my peers that how can i facilitate a marginalized community because i don't come from marginalized context myself and my identities are actually the identities that one often associates the oppressors with right whether it's my caste whether it's my economic strata so how do i go and facilitate that process i have a personal response to this but i'm very curious how would you respond to let's say a colleague or a peer facilitator who's dealing with that kind of a dilemma that how do i facilitate a marginalized group when i don't have any lived experience of marginalization or perhaps i have greater associations with you know where power and oppression is situated even though you know it's not it's not that one is doing it but that's that's where one's roots are right like if you ask me i i come from you know an ancestral legacy of uh, upper caste zamindars actually that's my context right so very curious how would you respond to a question like that that's an incredible question shalini and that that has hit me a number of times i also come from an upper caste i was born into an upper caste family rightly called as dominant caste from north india born as a male relatively fair is able to speak english and i worked in a community movement which worked to eliminate manual scavenging where 95% of the people who were part of the movement came from that community and there is a direct conflict as you said that you often form a part of the community which they perceive or find as oppressors now it's a challenge uh, to answer us I'll, i'll answer this in two parts one is a straight answer and then maybe a slightly longer version so the straight answer is that is it important to be from the marginalized community the one which you are facilitating i think it's not necessary it's not essential but it's definitely desirable not everything can happen the way we imagine it to be and it's also not a fixed way of doing it i mean you cannot be sure that a person who is from lgbtqi community does a great job it's likely that somebody else who's able to do it but there's certain pretext to it there's certain engagement for it which can make it happen and what is that I just came up with something while you were just speaking. I said solidarity is more than words. Is not I stand in solidarity with you. Amazing. But it's more than words. Now what is it? I'm not getting into it, but I'm saying it's something more than words and everybody gets to know that. Particularly the marginalized communities. 
because they have experienced it all their lives. You may not know because you've always been like that. I may not know, but when you go there, they're able to just sense it in a moment. I can give you an example. I would go to a village, sit among the community which is engaged into manual scavenging, mostly come from SC community. I would not say much, I'm just sitting. The first thing which they will tell me, not tell me, but tell me one of my colleague who's from their community is not that he has come from a city because the kind of clothes I'm wearing. But the first thing they will tell is, yeah, this guy is from the upper caste. I have hardly spoken. I'm just sitting there. But caste is so much in this context. Caste is so much more than describing your identity. It comes into your etiquettes, the way you sit, the way you engage, the way you look. It's much more. So they get to know and everybody gets to know. So solidarity is more than words. Now, why do I say that you don't do not necessarily have to be from the community, although it's desirable. I say this because there's no doubt that you can be ally, you can be an ally to a marginalized community. And this is very important to say that you cannot be an ally because you're not replacing them. You may spend, I may spend 50 years with marginalized communities, I'll still be an ally, I'll not be them. So one lesson that I learned early on in Safai Karamchari Andolan is that you cannot be a voiceover for a community member, whoever you are. And this comes from one of the instances where the founder of the organization, Bezbara Wilson, he was traveling to Tamil Nadu because one of her board members who has done manual scavenging for 30 years, uh, there was an international crew that was coming to interview her. And Wilson said to somebody that I have to go to Tamil Nadu. I'm unavailable tomorrow to another board member who's a very senior person. He says, why are you going to Tamil Nadu? He says, because, you know, the foreign media contingent is coming and I will be able to tell her story better. And I still remember he asked this question. Do you really believe you'll be able to tell her story better? And he was like, he went into deep thought and he said, like, that's a question. And the next line he said was that if Nagamma, her name was Nagamma, if Nagamma cannot share her story, nobody else in the world can. And you must not go. You must send a translator. I'm just sharing how much caution one needs to practice. This person who said I will go and translate, who came from the same community. His parents were manual scavengers. His brother was a manual scavenger. He comes from that same community. Still, he cannot be a voiceover for Nagamma because she has done manual scavenging being a woman, being from that caste for 30 years in that space. How can anyone else tell that story? That comes me to the point that how you can be an ally. Now, that's a very important question because we are always discussing in two paradigms. One, you can be an ally. Two, you cannot be an ally. So there are two kinds of arguments. I'm saying you can be an ally. It's not desirable. The ideal way is that someone from them comes up. But if you want to be an ally, you can. But there are certain ways to do it. One, you need to have a lot of patience. And two, you need to completely make them feel, not with your words, but with your actions, by your being, by your doing, that you are one of them. 
when it comes to their fight. There can be no more incredible example of this Shalini than, than the ally of Dr. B.R. Ambedkar, who actually was a Brahmin. Now, how do we contextualize this or how do we, how do we reconcile this? His entire fight was against Brahminism and ending caste atrocities. And one of his key allies was a Brahmin. Another example, the chairperson of Safai Karamchari Andolan for 20 years was a Brahmin. Now, how do you reconcile this? The board members are there. And by the way, just to say this, the person who said, I just quoted the example that the person told Bezwara Wilson that, how can you be a voiceover? And if she can't, that was the same man who said, how can you be the voiceover? And then Wilson told us that sometimes when you look things for far too close, you lose sense, you lose sight. So he says sometimes you need to go away. And because he comes from that another space, he's able to always share that insight with us. So one, just cutting the long answer short, one, you need to have patience. Two, you need to communicate adequately in more than words that you stand with them. And three, not take offense. Because people may still question you. I mean, it's been five years at Safai Karamchari and people say, how oh, you are a Brahmin, how can you do this? Then not take offense, it's a genuine question. Then try and share and then be who you are and then they will realize. So not take offense and be there who you are. And then people do realize over the time and do appreciate what you're doing. Everyone who's into that space and want to facilitate it needs to ask this question, are you up for this journey? It's not an easy journey. You'll be questioned outright. You will also be dismissed without people knowing you. And that's even more hurtful. But they have a reason to do so. If you really think, I'm not saying what they're doing is right. I'm just saying that there's a context to it. And if you understand that context, you become to make, you make start to make sense of it. And if you have decided to be on that journey, to be able to adapt to these values, then there's no reason that you cannot be an ally. On the contrary, Shalini, I have sometimes felt that people in the leadership, in the movement that I worked for, sometimes saw me with more respect than others because they acknowledged the distance that I've traveled. And I felt grateful to them to be able to, to, be, to have lived a life of oppression and still acknowledging the distance someone else has traveled, of whose perception may have been radically different otherwise. So I think it's a tough choice, but if you're up for making it, I think we find people all the time. I mean, I have friends who are cis people who are into queer movements all the time, all the time in all the movements. Because as I was listening to, uh, to the last podcast, that how do you engage men in the discourse of uh, women on feminism? Very interesting insight from that podcast. I, I wrote that line somewhere I've, and that we have always questioned, but that prompted me again, that triggered. And I was, I was writing that, what is the role of dominant caste in the liberation of Dalits? So I'm only saying role. I'm not saying responsibility or accountability or blessing. But I'm saying, what is the role? And we need to engage with that role. 
from the perspective of a Dalit person or from perspective of an oppressed person. It is also possible, Shalini, that in circles or in communities which they perceive as oppressive, if you make them center stage and begin to talk from their perspective and make them feel at ease, at comfort and make them feel belonged, they begin to come up with their stories. And I've experienced some spaces where people who have oppressed and people who have been oppressed have been able to share their stories of oppression and how they have oppressed. Often we story share stories of greatness. You know, I'm a Brahmin, but I still did this. But to acknowledge that I'm a Brahmin and I did this. And for, a, for an oppressed to say that I've, I'm this and, you know, I encountered this and this broke me in this way actually changes things. And those are the kinds of experiences that I cherish and live for and believe can be the core for change. Awesome. Thank you so much, Tivas. I think two things that I took away from your this recent response, be an ally, not a, not a voiceover. Very important. I think that gave me a whole new frame to have these conversations and engage with that dilemma. And I think this example that you took, which is about uh, Bhimrao Ambedkar and the movement that he led, and I'm like, yeah, how, how you know, I think that the dots kind of all kind of connected uh, for me. So I think it's very interesting. I have one final question for you. And that question is, do trainings empower marginalized communities? Or is it a myth? Do trainings empower not even marginalized community. Actually, let me reframe my question. Do trainings empower people? Hmm. Tougher question. <laughs> the previous one was easy. <laughs> to be very honest, that's a question for myself. And I do not have a clear answer. I'm definitely tilted towards one direction. I believe they do. I believe that they do influence behavioral patterns. They nudge people to change their patterns. They also follow, do follow-up actions. But I've come, I'm tilted towards that and that's what keeps me going. But I've often questioned this one thing that what will it take to proceed action after a training if that is meant to do so? Let's say we are doing a training with environmentalists, people who are aspiring to be environmentalists. What will it do? We've spoken about it. We've made some sense of it. We've got some friends. We have some idea. Now, what will it take to be able to do some action after that? And how many people have done it? And how many people have resisted for any action? For their own genuine reasons. But what is that ratio? The second idea is that how many people have actually sustained behavioral changes over the course of time? So when we do it, the environment is great. Like people say, this is the way to go about it. And everybody says, oh, this is incredible. And people will take a vow also. I've always felt that once they go back, some people are not able to carry it. Some people do. But another realization that I had in kind of a longitudinal engagement with some people is that while they were able to do action for some time, they could not stay in it for far too long or they changed their opinion. First issues that they stood for. Now, 
the reason that I gave myself was after engaging with them that one they had a different experience after it. So one they had a different experience after it, but overturned their idea, the pre their previous idea of creating that change. And two is that they did not, which is I think most of the case, did not did not keep up with it, with that sincerity and dedication and commitment to be able to pursue what they were what they were pursuing, and that motivation went somewhere. And I've read conflicting studies on it. Some people, some say that it does, some say it doesn't. But in my idea, it does fundamentally, even if the ratio is not as we would expect. You would expect that out of 30 people, 15 people are going to make change. May not, may not happen. Five may do. But that five is a good enough number actually for a small workshop. That's another thing that I, that I, that I told myself. It's not always have to be like 20 people out of 30. So if you would ask for a fundamental answer, then I do believe that it does cost, create change. But I think we, as facilitators, we also need to constantly find out more ways to be able to create follow-up action if we desire so. It is perfectly fine for somebody to do a workshop, a session, and may not do any follow-up action. He just, he or she just did a workshop and just went over it, and that's fine. But some of us who want to follow up on the action that follows after the workshop, I think we need to find more ways and that's a challenge. We need to find more ways to be able to do this better. I think there is a scope of possibility to be able to do better at this. But it does create change. I think there are no two ways about it. Awesome. Your final closing message to you know, all the facilitators and trainers who might be listening to this conversation. And when I say facilitators, trainers, I don't just mean those who deliver workshops. I mean, the, you know, uh, if a listener is also, let's say, a manager in a team, for example, and is every day facilitating them towards a direction. And let's say they are really at the brink of, you know, uh, they are standing at the peripheries wondering, should they, can they, will they, can I actually, you know, walk into that territory? And like you said, if I open the box, can I close it? You know, uh, looks very risky, looks very scary, but I want to work in this context uh, for many reasons, right? What would be your closing message to anyone who is in the space of facilitation training, but is standing at the peripheries of working with marginalized communities? On a lighter note, this first came to my mind, start at home which is where I always fail. <laughs> Probably the highest failure ratio in my life in facilitation will be at home where we have most judgments. But keeping that aside, I think find out more about them and find newer ways to know about them. I'll give an example, some of some one part of my own journey. I just uh, recently, last month, went for a journey for a week with nomads in Himachal Pradesh. People who rear sheep, I stayed with them for a week because that community always intrigued me. And there's this one quote I read in a book many, many years ago. He said that other than nomads, everybody is mad. That's why they're nomads. So, so that intrigued me because they're always on the move. They go uphill, they go downhill, they spend the nights, they have two dogs, they have sheep, they sometimes sell sheep, they sometimes take wool out of them and sell it, eat food, they have a family and they have no house. And that always intrigued me. And coincidentally, I was in Himachal Pradesh a couple of months ago. And I have a friend there. And he got us introduced to somebody else who knew these people really well. 
I said, that's not a problem. I'll just get you introduced to these communities and you can go anywhere you like. I said, that'll be amazing. So what I did was I just went, spent a week with them. It's very tough because they mostly eat non-vegetarian and I'm a vegetarian guy. So very tough. But uh, it op- helped me open up to possibilities that otherwise I would have definitely missed. So I think the first step would be to know them and not know them because you have to facilitate a session for them. So it's a target. So you have a session on Saturday, you go on Friday afternoon. Not knowing like that. Knowing because they are your countrymen, if that identity matters to you. Or they are from your state, if that identity matters to you. Or if you're a woman, they are women. Or, you know, from the oppressed communities, if that matters to you. Whichever identity moves you. If you get inspired by that identity and get to know them because you have to know them. I think facilitation, a lot of it will come naturally to you because you'll realize their part of life, their stories, their struggles and their dreams and aspirations in a way that most people do not understand. So I think first get to know them, get to know them in newer ways and to be open to learn from them. Because they may teach things to you that in the first sight may not be very useful to us. So if I would go to a village, I remember this somewhere in a headmaster in a village who would say, tomorrow morning we'll teach you how to milk a cow. And my first impression was, what is this work? How is this going to help me and why should I learn how to milk a cow? I'm never going to have a cow at home. But... Can we be open to number of things like that? Which, because it's not about milking a cow. It's about an experience that you get while milking a cow, which will tell you a number of things which you've otherwise not experienced and you'll not get to experience in a formal setting. So be a part of them and then adapt to them by listening to them and be one of them. This is one quote that somebody asked, Vinoba Bhave, I saw it somewhere from a friend and he said that, Vinoba ji, how should we treat others? He was very concerned, very well-intentioned man, nice person. I don't know a man or a woman, but nice person who would have asked this question. Vinoba ji, on his journey when he was traveling village to village getting land for people, he said, Vinoba ji, I'm so bothered. How should we treat others? And his response was, there are no others. So things become easy, like like you become one of them and then facilitation becomes a part of it. It becomes a byproduct. You go at any point and then facilitate a session. And I say this because I happen to work with some communities who allowed me to a part of their family. And I remember not staying in a hotel, but staying in that village and having a great time. But that perspective needs to shift and that will shift once you, once you move from one space to another because one way to look at it also that I lost the comfort of a hotel to live in a village which can be a right perspective I'm not even judging that perspective which can be a right perspective for many people who may face real problems like water uh, and who may actually feel sick after a day because they may not be able to adapt to that atmosphere but other perspective is that I had a lot of fun which I literally had So between those, as Buddha said, there are not just two ways, but many ways. If either of these two do not work for you, there are more ways that are in the middle of it. And then you can slowly nudge and tilt yourself towards a space 
where you can make an effort to be one. And then things do not remain work or task or a project. Then things evolve and then you also learn and then you get better. So I think that could be a starting guide and then probably the life ahead of us will tell us how do we move forward, which I am on the way very much. Maybe I've done this much only to be able to share. Well, Divas, thank you so much. So many things, so wisely, so uh, humbly stated in this conversation. I think they all become headlines for me. And uh, I think there definitely needs to be like a follow-up to this conversation at some point. Maybe we'll catch you like in another, you know, at, at a milestone in your life and career where you made that, uh, you know, what you said, that there's still more, more stuff that you have to discover about your own self, about communities around. And uh, I think that that whole sentence that there are no others, I think that just did something to me. You know, it's uh, it's so simple and yet so deep, right? I uh, love that. I'm going to, you know, just say that thank you so much for this conversation. And, uh, you know, if you've enjoyed listening to Divas, we will tag him on all our social media accounts so that you can get in touch with him directly. Uh, Divas, thank you so much for... Uh, you know, bringing the nuances of doing and being, uh, especially when one is setting out to work with marginalized communities. There's just so much that I'm taking away from this conversation. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Shalini. You're an inspiration. And that quote that you started with was given by one of our mentors called Jayesh Bhai Patel in Gujarat, who runs a beautiful organization called Manav Sadhana in Gandhi Ashram. And when I asked this question to him, maybe around 10 years ago that, you know, sometimes I often feel tired and exhausted. And he said, in his own subtle, very light voice, you can barely hear him. He would say, change of work is rest. Try this. I said, change of work is rest. And since then, it has always come to my rescue. Thank you so much, Shalini. It's, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I'm grateful that you had me. I look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you, Divas.